All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. Good to have you here this morning. Uh, just want to give you a couple of announcements for things that are happening over the next few weeks as we come into our season of celebration related to the holiday. Uh, on December 18th, which is next Sunday morning, our children's choir will be doing a presentation. So if you have friends that you'd like to invite for that, we'd love to and want to encourage you uh, to do that. Our Christmas Eve celebration will be at 5 o'clock. And then on Christmas Day, we are having a service here at 1030. It'd probably be a little bit of a quieter service, but a time for us to reflect on the birth of Christ. So we want you to be aware of that as well. Our mission emphasis for this week is the Walter Hoving Home uh, in Oxford, New Jersey. That's a ministry that we support that is involved with helping women in seasons of recovery. And uh, just want to encourage you to be praying primarily for the leadership there. Uh, as I interact with them, I'm always mindful of the uh, difficulty of that ministry, of the types of circumstances that they deal with on a regular basis. And so I want to really encourage you to be praying for the leadership team at the Walter Hoving Home. We're going to do that this morning when we go to prayer. So our, our verse for this morning that I want to read to you is Galatians 4, verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children of God. This morning as we pray, we can come into God's presence because of what he has done for us through Christ. And so as we, uh, as we join our hearts together in prayer this morning, uh, we do it as God's children, as sons, as daughters of God through the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. He's taken rebels and he's made us his children. And that is a very beautiful and glorious truth that we get to proclaim this morning. So I want you to stand with me as we go to prayer this morning. So Father, as we come into your presence this morning as a church family, uh, fill our hearts with hope and joy because of what you have done for us through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came uh, freely, you came willingly, you came out of love, not obligation, not out of duty, but out of love you came. And you shed your blood on Calvary's cross so that we could be forgiven and set free. Lord, we pray that that work of freedom uh, would be working very powerfully through the Walter Hoving Home even this week. Uh, Lord, as they interact with ladies that are in very difficult situations, I pray that you would give strength to the leadership team there and favor as they share the good news of freedom through the work of Jesus. We also lift up uh, Steve and Michelle Adams this week as Michelle lost her mom uh, this week, Lord. Uh, we pray for her in this season of grief and uh, just pray that there would be rich favor and rich blessing uh, during this time of loss. Uh, also pray for Michelle's back as she's with her you know, sister uh, out in Missouri and working through a, her own season of difficulty physically. We pray that there would be favor and restoration and healing upon her. We pray for little uh, Cam Trukowski as he goes in for heart surgery this week, Lord. Uh, this little guy, just pray that your favor would be resting on him. I pray that you would give great peace to uh, mom and dad, the, the, the entire family, as they walk through this season together. Give protection as he walks through this uh, surgery, Lord. Pray your little blessing over that little guy. And uh, Lord, 
those in our church family that have been battling long sickness. I know many people who have uh, just this week been battling with the flu, with COVID. Uh, Lord, we pray for freedom from them from those sicknesses. We lift up Diana Kelly and just continue to ask, Father, that your favor, your hand would rest powerfully on her life and on Victor's life, and that they would find great service and usefulness in your kingdom through this season of struggle. Now, Lord, as we join our hearts to sing, I pray that we will have great joy as we sing the praises, Lord Jesus, of your coming, as we meditate on what all of this season means for us, that you came in the fullness of time so that rebels like us could receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. So, Lord, fill us with joy and hope as we sing these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. And for his glory and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him together. Listen, come thou long. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation, hope. Of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Yes, Lord, you are our joy. Born thy people. And born thy people to deliver, born a child, and yet born to reign, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit. Come thou long. Come thou long. Expected Jesus. Come thou long. Expected King. Yes, Lord. And come thou long. Yes, he is our king. 
sing, Blessed Jesus, we adore you. And blessed Jesus, we adore you, light of life and son of love. All your children bow yes, we bow before you, speak your name and lift you up. King of kings from highest heaven, Lord of love. you our hearts and come thou Lord expected Jesus come thou Lord expected King come Lord, we've come this morning to praise you, to glorify you, and to worship you. We're asking for your presence here by the Holy Spirit. Come rule in our hearts alone. Saves us 
Come have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. So come and worship. Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. God is with us, even now His love is here. Yes, He is with us. Come and worship. Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. God is with us. Even now, His love is here. His love is here. Oh, 
silently. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His hand. God, we thank you that you made a way when there simply was no way, that all the hopes and all the fears of all those years leading up to the promise being coming to pass. Israelites and Hebrews, Lord, they longed for that. They longed for the promises from the Old Testament that one day God would make things right. And maybe they thought it would be a redemption of, um, of kingdom, of land, that God would show up and put them in their right place, you know, topple governments. But Lord, you came in a much different, more humble way. Because you knew the real rulers, the real problems, the real problem rulers in this world is each of us individually. That we fight over the, uh, the throne of our hearts. We struggle, we wrestle, we want to be in control. We want to do what we want to do. 
We want there to be no consequences. We're frustrated when bad people make progress, Lord. We think to ourselves, who cares? Who cares what I do? Because the wicked prosper, and that is something we see in the Old Testament as well. They are very aware of that fact, and you are aware of that fact, Lord, but you said that one day everything will be made right. The crooked paths we made straight. Lord, we know you're a way maker. We know you're a promise keeper. We know you're that light in the darkness. We thank you that all of our hopes and our hearts, Lord, are found their fullness and their purpose in you. Please continue to be with us as we sing. You are here, moving in our midst. And I worship you. And I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. Sing that again. You are here. You are here, moving in our midst. And I worship you. Yes, we do. And I worship you. You're here working, Lord. You are here, working in this place. Working our hearts. I worship you. I worship you. You're the way maker. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you. I worship you. Yes, we do, Lord. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you. Yes, we do, Lord. And I worship you. You're turning lives around. You are here. worship you. You are here, mending every heart. And I worship you, yeah. And I worship you. And you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the Who you are. 
you are. The way maker, miracle worker. You made promises and you fulfilled your promises. I sing even when. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you light in the darkness we see that at Christmas time Lord we're reminded of that at Christmas time that you made a way Lord the way you came down the earth doesn't make any sense why like that why like a baby 
Why not coming and conquering? But like I said earlier, Lord, you knew you needed to conquer our hearts first. You are a promise keeper. You said you're coming back. We believe that as Christians, that one day everything will be made right. And some of us may not see that, you know, on earth necessarily, may not be here. We'll fall asleep in Christ, as they say, as it says in the Bible. But we're with you. God, we thank you for making a way in big, massive ways. The death on the cross and your resurrection is huge. It's the most important thing in the history of the universe. It's the most important thing for Christians. But we thank you, God, that you're also still working through your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. It's not just that and then goodbye, going up to heaven, see you later, come back someday. The Holy Spirit is here with us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd make a way in the circumstances that are in the forefront of our minds right now, whatever it is, Lord, that we are thinking about and concerned about and worried about and panicked about, please make a way. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. We know that's true, God. We thank you for this time of worship, Lord. I ask you to help us to continue to worship you as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. for Junior Church. Uh, for the rest of you, would you turn your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Uh, so this will be our last uh, message um, from Ecclesiastes this calendar year. Um, next week we'll pick up um, some themes from Christmas uh, for the next two weeks, uh, the 18th and then Christmas Day on uh, Christmas Day on the 25th, and then we'll have a New Year's theme message on the 1st, and then we'll pick back up with Ecclesiastes, Lord willing, January the 8th. So I, I entitled this message, Understanding Wisdom and Its Limits, and we've been hearing the uh, last several weeks about wisdom. You, the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes um, the writer, I think was Solomon, uh, said that he tried to find real meaning in life in a myriad of ways. He, he tried almost everything that you can think of under the sun to try to find satisfaction, contentment, and peace, and hope, and joy, and he couldn't find it. Every time he would run up against something, he would find more meaninglessness, more misery, more vanity, vanity of vanities, misery of miseries. And then when he got into chapter 7, he started to make a turn. He started to um, talk about what wisdom is and, and how we could have it. Last week we heard that we can live humbly before the Lord under the sun. And today, he's going to begin this chapter by asking two questions, two rhetorical questions. And what he's going to ask you is this, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? These two questions. And very honestly, these are really good questions. And that's why he's going to talk about wisdom and its benefits. But then he's going to also talk about the limits of wisdom. That we're not going to know everything this side of heaven. Uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, and it says, The secret things belong to God, and the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. 
And what he was saying is that there are two different types of wisdom. There are two different things that we learn. There is a revealed sense of what God has said. He's given that to us in the 66 books that we hold in our hands. He's revealed to us truth. He's revealed to us his word. But there are secret things that we can't possibly know and that we will probably never know. And that's where we need to live in light of that. I don't know if you're like most people, but most people struggle with wanting to control things. They want to know every little thing. And when they can't know something, they get themselves very frustrated. And so what they do is they, they have this fear and they need to control. And the more controlling they get, the more angry they get, the more frustrated that they get. They get internally frustrated and then they get externally frustrated. And what, what the writer is going to say here is this, that there's certain things that God wants you to know. Know them well, and then have joy in life. But the other things, trust. And that's so hard for us. What do you do when life seems competing? What do you do when life seems confusing? What, what do you do when life seems so confounding? What wisdom do you turn to? Your wisdom or God's wisdom? Well, this whole chapter is about turning to God's wisdom. So let's look at this passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's look at first several verses. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's commandments because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell how will it be? No man has power to retain his spirit, the power over the day of his death. There is a, no discharge from war, nor will evil or wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while I was applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when a man had power over man to his hurt. Well, this is the sufficient, eternal, authoritative, life-giving and life-changing word. Would you pray with me? So, Father, you've spoken to us. Holy Spirit, you've spoken to us. Lord Jesus, you've spoken to us in your word. I pray that as we try to interpret it, I pray that we would do that well today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be um, pleasing to you. And Father, if, if I interpret this correctly and I attempt to apply it correctly, I pray that my hearers would hear as coming from you the way of wisdom. Father, help us to see the benefits of wisdom, but also help us to see the limitations of it. And in those places, Father, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's three main points I want to uh, try to look at this morning. Uh, verses 1 through 9, we're going to be looking at how we are called to submit to God-given authority. How we're called to submit to God-given authority in our lives. 
The second is this, and found in verses 10 through 14, I want you to see life through the eyes of eternity. See, we live wisely when we can see our lives through the eyes of eternity. So submit to God-given authority, number one. See life through the eyes of eternity, number two. And then I want you to save our life. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to find your security in God in the midst of the craziness of this world. And that will be uh, chapter 15, uh, verses 15 through the end. Well, let's start with submitting to God-given authority. What, what is interesting is here, he gives this proverb, and, and he starts with verse 1 as it's a proverb. He says, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. He asks these rhetorical questions, and he's saying, I, I want you to consider how many people really are truly wise. And, and the reality is, is this, there are not very many wise people in this world. There are a lot of people that think they're wise. There are a lot of people that think they're intelligent. They may have a bunch of letters after their name, but they're pretty dumb, Scripture will say. Paul says in Romans, they profess to be wise, but they became what? Fools, right. So in these two rhetorical questions, he says, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation? A wise person can interpret life through the lens of God's word. What's amazing here is this. He says, this wise person can interpret life well, and not many people do it. But then what does he say? There's a benefit to those who are wise. Watch. A man's wisdom makes his face do what? Shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. You know, over the years, I have sat with many people, and you could tell in their face, the countenance, oftentimes, what is going on in their hearts. That what is happening in their hearts, the hurt, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the confusion, the frustration comes out on their faces, on their countenance, and they look pretty hard. But then you run into a person that just seems like they have a trust in God, a faith in God a contentment in God, and you could see it as it shines off their face. I was thinking in, in Genesis chapter 41, the king at the time was, could not have his dream interpreted, and he really wanted somebody to interpret his dream. He brought all these wise men, fools, around him, and they couldn't interpret the dream. And then all of a sudden, one of his servants who had been in jail said, oh, I remember there was this guy in jail who can interpret a dream. And then what, you remember what happened? Joseph was brought before the king, and he interpreted that dream for the king. He interpreted it in such a way that he was able to give him what God had ordained, and then he even gave him a plan of what he needed to do. And the face of the king, it says in verse 37, lifted. There was a countenance that changed in the king. Daniel had something similar that people looked at him. You remember when he had the test with the food test, and they said they looked at those guys that used the Hebrew food, and it's like, wow, they glow. There is something different about them. When Moses came down from seeing God, his face shined in such a way that they wanted him to put a veil over his face. And as Stephen was being slaughtered, martyred, stoned to death, they said he had a face like an angel. There is something that happens internally in a person's life that comes out externally. That's a wise person. A wise person 
has a difference in appearance. When, when you look at somebody, I, I can't tell you how many times I could just walk around and I could just look at a person. It's like, I think that person's a believer. You could hear it in the tone. You could hear it. In, and then you sit down and you talk to them. It's like, yeah, you're a believer. I'm a believer too. You could see something different about those that rest in Christ, those that rest in God. There's a joy to life. There's a liberation that happens from within. So I want you to know that when you submit to God-given authority, it starts with you submitting to God. <laughs> that God is the ultimate authority, and that as you do that, as you rest in him internally, he comes out of you externally. He shines his light to you, through you. Well, submitting to God-given authority is not just what's happening internally, but it's also what happens externally. Look in verse 2. It says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. There are so many people that want to reject the authority of those people that are in control. Now, the king here, the political leaders, but I want you to think about any authority that you have because all of us are under authority. We're under God's authority, but each one of us are under some level of authority. That authority may be a, a parent to a child. Um, that authority may be a boss to an employee. That authority may be an elder to parishioners. That that that. Um, authority may be policemen or judges. That authority could be your coach or your referee. All of these authority figures are people that have been placed into your life by God. And what it says is keep the king's commandments because of God's oath to him. It's interesting, this last section, God's oath to him, it's, it's questioned because to him is not actually in there. I think the, my ESV, which I use, um, puts to him in there, but it talks about God's oath. Now, is it God's oath to the king? Possibly. Is it the humans, the submissives' oath to the king? Could be. Is it king's oath to God? I guess it could be that as well. But Whatever it is, it's this, that there is a plea or a vow that is made to God, and part of that comes down to the fact that we are going to obey the king's wishes. It's almost like your wish is my command. We, we live in a day that people are trying to reject God-given authority. You may not like the authority that is there. You may not have voted for the authority that is there, but God has ordained that this person or these people will be in, in control. And as we submit ourselves to God, we are submitting ourselves to these God-given authorities. Rather than rejecting, rather than disrespecting them, we are living in such an entitled society today. We are living in a society that makes us the center of life. And we are not supposed to be the center of life. God is supposed to be the center of life. He, his, our oath to him should be the center of how we obey. Obey the king externally because of our oath to the king, God, ultimately. See, God has established all of authority in our lives. There is not an authority figure that you have right now that God has not sovereignly ordained. Even the good ones and the bad ones, God has put in control. All of us are under that authority, and God intends for us to submit to that authority in a way that honors God. Now, I know, I know probably in your mind you're thinking, well, what happens if that authority tells me to do something wrong? Well, clearly there are limits. We'll talk more about that. He's not saying that we are supposed to obey the king ultimately and completely and totally in everything that they do. But there should be a heartbeat that I want to be submissive. But we live in a society that doesn't want to submit. And that creates more chaos and confusion in life. Look at verse 3. It says that, Be not hasty to go from his presence. 
Don't run away very quickly. Some of you don't want to submit to authority, so what do you do? You run away, you know? I, I got some students in school, and it's like, what are you doing walking the hallways? I don't want to be in class. Well, get back to class. I mean, it's like, you, you just want to walk away. I want to run away from that job. I want to run away from that church. I want to run away from that marriage. I want to run away from these things in my life. I'm just so sick of it, and we want to run away. Don't be hasty. Make wise decisions. It's interesting in this culture that if you just ran to come into the king's presence was, was an ultimate level of, um, I can't think of a good word, but you needed to be called into the presence of the king. Now, to be called into the presence of king was an ultimate privilege. But now if you're just running away from the king, that would have been viewed as a form of disrespect. And so what he's saying is don't be hasty in doing that, but then also do not take your stand on an evil cause. Don't sit there and do evil versus evil. Now, the king may have done evil. Don't you respond in an evil way. Don't be disloyal. Don't go away from him. And don't break God's law to deal with somebody else's law. So that's hard. See, when we feel like we're being rebelled against, we want to rebel against them. God says when you are being rebelled against, still act in God-honoring ways. Submitting to authority has its limits. When the authority tells you to do something wrong, we're supposed to obey God rather than men. But the biggest problem that we have today, one of the biggest problems is that we're rebels. We were rebels from the Garden of Eden, rebelling against God. We still have that rebel nature within us. We just don't want to submit to authority. And one of the greatest things that we could do as parents is to teach our kids to submit to authority. Teach our kids to listen. Teach our kids to be quiet and submissive and respectful. And when, when there is an issue that goes against God's law, teach them to be strong, to be able to take a stand, but do it in a patient, godly, and respectful way. We have people today that just don't do that. I want you to think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were these three young men who were, a law came and says, we want you to bow down to this, this idol and worship. And they said, oh, king, we can't do that. I'm sorry. Uh, we will do almost anything, but we will not bow down. And we believe, and you want to kill us, that's fine. We believe that our God can rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we are still not going to bow down to this idol. So what they did was they were respectful, they were patient, but they trusted God, that God was sovereignly in control. They did not become evil to evil, they did what was right against the evil. So important for us to do. Look at verse 4, it says this, For the word of the king is supreme, God has established them as the lawgiver. And who may say to him, what are you doing? See, it's unwise to challenge a king. It's unwise to also run away from the king. It's unwise to be sinful against a sinful king. What do we need to do? We need to be patient and deferential. We need to do the right thing, and we need to do it in the right time. But that takes wisdom. When you have a boss that's a pain in the neck, when you have a spouse that is on top of you and causing you struggles, when you have a kid that is wayward, it takes patience. It takes deference. It takes the ability to wait and to find God's wisdom and to do the prudent thing. Don't act impulsively. That's what our society does. We act on our emotions and our experiences rather than the exposition of God's word. Do what is right. 
And what he says is this, that when you do that, there is a huge blessing to obedience. Watch what it says in verse 5. For whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. Now, as I think Pastor Doug mentioned last week, and we've talked about through our Proverbs series, is that there are times that these proverbial statements are made in such a way that it could sound like it is an absolute promise, but it's not. It is a general principle that we need to live in life. That when you keep the commandments, you will know no evil thing. Well, we all know that that is not completely and totally accurate all the time. Jesus Christ did no evil. He always kept the commandments, and he had evil upon evil that came upon him. All the prophets of the Old Testament were pretty much martyred. All the New Testament uh, apostles were pretty much martyred. So you could do the right thing, and sometimes evil will come. But generally speaking, I would tell you that if you take care of your life, Life tends to go a lot easier at times. There are elements where your relationships will be a lot smoother if you just do the right thing. That you will be a good employee and then you know what? You may actually advance at work. And it's, your relationships may be better. Your life may be better. Maybe if you take care of your body, then guess what? You may not have as many struggles in life. When you do the right thing, life tends to make it easier. I guess in other ways, because of persecution, it could be harder, but in certain ways, it could be easier. And that's what he's saying, that the wise heart, the heart is your internal you. It's not just the emotions, but it's your thoughts, it's your passions, it's your desires. The internal you, your heart, the heart will know the proper time and the right way. See, it takes wisdom to know the proper time to confront something. I know I can't wake my wife up at five o'clock in the morning. And she knows that she can't have a big conversation with me at 11 o'clock at night. It's just not the right, what, it was not the right time. I need to know when and I need to know how for everything. Although man's trouble is heavy upon him. What he's saying is that you need to exercise restraint and self-control. There's a time to obey and there's a time to righteously disobey. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we cannot obey this law. It's wrong. But I'm going to righteously disobey this law. I'm going to do it in a respectful and patient and different way. There's a time to stay, and there is a time to go. There is a time to um, submit, and then there's a time to say, no, I won't. But that is not done by your passions and your desires. That's done through the venting of the word of God through your life. See, trouble will come. You know, you don't know the future and I don't know it, but what we do know is that troubles will come upon us, but there is a huge blessing to living under God's standard. He moves into verse 7 and he talks about the fact that you need to choose your battles wisely. I was just talking to a friend yesterday, Friday actually, and he was ready to get into this battle with somebody and it's like... Is this really worth it? And I actually said to him, is this more of a skirmish or is this a really good battle that you need to battle? For some people, they battle everything and all the time they're constantly fighting people. It's just not worth it. Back in the Civil War, there was a guy at Gettysburg who went and left his line, the protective line for the Union Army, and he went down into the wheat field to fight a battle that meant nothing. He actually lost his leg over it as well. And sometimes we fight battles that mean nothing and it will gain us no ground. 
We need to choose our battles wisely. Look what it says in verse 7. For he does not know what is to be and and who can tell him how will it be. Two things. He doesn't know what is to be. He doesn't know the future. And number two, he doesn't know the right way to handle the thing. See, there's wisdom in our lives, but we need to have wisdom to know that there are limits. I don't know the future. I could tell you, generally speaking, that here are principles that you need to follow, but I don't know if this person's going to be cured of that disease. I really don't. I don't know if this person's going to be rescued from that danger. I don't know. But what I do know is this, when I can trust God's commands and I follow them and trust that God will work it all together for good, radically changes our lives. So for some of us, we think we can tell the future. We can't. For some of us, we think we know what the right way is and we never consult God in his word. That's a problem. He says in verse 8 that no man has the power to retain the spirit. Now, my version uses the word spirit, and that spirit, I guess, could be our spirit. I guess that could be God's spirit, but it actually, I think it's translated wind. And so what it seems to say is this, I want you to live under this reality. You cannot control the wind. I think it's probably wind here, especially since, I could catch, um, uh, I especially since this whole book He's been talking about meaningless vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. I think what he's saying here is this. You can't control the wind. You can't control the day of your death. It says, or the power over the day of your death. I've known people who've tried to take their lives and they weren't successful. It's interesting to me. They sovereignly chose to take their lives, right? But God sovereignly said, this is not your day that you're going to die. See, we can't control wind. We can't even control the day of our death. We can't control when we're at war. There's no discharge from war. I could, I'm in war, I must battle. I can't go AWOL. I can't just run away. I have to submit to the authority that's above me. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. You can do evil upon evil upon evil, and it will trap you in a never-ending spiral downward. That's a huge blessing to obedience, but you need to consider and choose your battles wisely. So he concludes this first section in verse 9, and he says, All of this I observed. He sees it's interesting that he spends his life trying to understand wisdom, to see wisdom, to understand why it's happening. He says, I have observed all of this. I have gone through and taken my notes while applying my heart to all of these things done under the sun. And when I saw it, a man had power over man. And what did he do? He rebelled and hurt other people. See, all of us are under God-given authority. Some of us are under authorities that are evil. But God knows that. There's an uncertainty to our lives. We can't know the future. We can't know the day of our death. We can't control the wind. We can't control anything outside of us. That is why what we are called to do is not try to control things around us. What we're called to do is to try to control us. That's wisdom. 
See, when I control myself and I go to the sovereignty of God, God, you're in control, the providence of God, you have a plan, the presence of God, you're here with me, I'm not alone, the love of God, you love me so much that you sent your son for me. See, now that submission, when I submit to his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love, his presence, that is what gives hope in the midst of the most trying times of life. Wisdom can't explain it all. It can't tell you the future. Wisdom can't tell you that you have control over some things. But what wisdom can do is this. Wisdom can help you to live differently. In James chapter 4, it says this. James chapter 4, it says, Come now, verse 13, come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a while, a time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boasting is in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whether, whatever you know the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. What James is saying there is this. We, we live our lives sometimes thinking that we know what the future is. We don't. We live our lives in such a way that we think we can control these things. We can't. But what we can do is Lord willing. You know, back in uh, older times, they used to sign their name. And at the end of their name, they would put these two letters. D-V. Deo Valente. Lord willing. And so if we lived our lives in such a way that we lived under the submission of God and independence of God, we lived in the life that he has granted us, then guess what? When the things around us don't go like we want, we won't be so depressed. We won't be so discouraged. We won't be so defeated because we know that we have a God who's a great lover who will never leave us. So that's the first point he wanted to get to. He wanted you to submit to God-given authority. Second thing he wants you to do is this. He wants you to see life through the eyes of eternity. See life through the eyes of eternity. So now, yes, okay, so I need to submit to authority, but there's some bad things that happen. Yes, they do. That's one of the enigmas of this world. It's like God is sovereignly in control, but God has sovereignly also allowed evil to happen. God has allowed for diseases to come. God has allowed for pain and suffering in this world. Why? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. There's injustice that happens in this world, but how can I live wisely? Keep eternity in your eyes. Watch what he says in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. He's almost going to like a funeral. He's sitting outside a church and he sees a funeral of a very wicked man. And he says, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they've done such things. This also is vanity. To try to understand how he could have wisdom, he now sits there and watches a funeral. And he sees in this funeral this, this evil man being praised by the world. Even the religious leaders are giving eulogies about this man who had done such evil but making it sound like he's such a great guy it just doesn't make sense it's like why does this happen and for this this writer the speaker the teacher he says in essence death brings perspective to our lives 
When we start to think of somebody else's death, maybe it starts to get us to think about our own death. And you can wink at sin earthly, but God is never going to wink at sin. And all of it is vanity. Bad people seem to get a good life here on earth. That happens. Good people seem to have a terrible life on earth at times. That happens. It's a problem with Psalm 73, Asaph, one of my favorite Psalms. He says, I am just so confused. I, I become envious of the arrogant. He looked at their lives and he said, their lives seem to be so good and my life seems to be so bad. It was worthless to live this godly life. Until he went into the sanctuary of God. And then he started to observe his own rebellion against God. He started to observe how God had been so gracious to him because of his own sin. He started to see that these wicked people are going to be judged. They may get praised here on earth, but they are going to be judged in eternity. He started to see with new eyes. That's what the writer in Psalm 73, Asaph, saw. And I think that's what Solomon is seeing here as well. He's getting a perspective that there may be an honorable treatment for the wicked, but that's just an honorable treatment here. They take their last breath. They're going to stand before their judge. Verse 11 says, what happens when punishment seems to delay, be delayed? It seems like that encourages more evil, right? Because the sentence, verse 11, against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Because there seems to be no deterrent, God has not wiped them off the face of this earth. God has not put them in punishment right now. They seem like they can get away with it. But isn't that us? You know, you get away with one thing. And, oh, that wasn't bad. I tried again. And tried again. See, de delayed justice doesn't mean that there is no justice. Justice may be painfully slow for many of us, but um, the reality is justice is still coming. Some people take advantage of the mercy and patience of God. I was just reading this to my Sunday school class. We were reading in Psalm 103 that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. One of the things that God does is that he gives you more time to repent. Every day that you sit under the preaching of God's word, every day that you hear that you will stand before God in eternity and you continue to rebel against him, he is giving you time to repent. He's giving you time to turn. He is giving you time to bend your knee to Christ. That is gracious that he is not, he's delaying his punishment. That is kind of him to do this. His kindness was to call you to call to repentance. He's using this. But the problem is that people lose a focus of God and then they lose a focus of the meaning of life. And then they lose a focus of the right way to live. And they do evil after evil after evil. And what he says is this. When you look, I want you to see through the eyes of eternity that we're all going to die. And we all stand before God. I want you to see through the eyes of eternity that just because God's punishment isn't coming quickly doesn't mean that God's punishment isn't coming. Verse 12 he tells us that justice is coming. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, this person has done evil over and over and over and over again. We were talking about that in our Sunday school class, weren't we? What happens when this person just continues to do wrong after wrong after wrong? Are we supposed to respond to their evil with evil? No, respond to their evil with righteousness. But don't forget, don't believe that God is not God. 
There was a um, viewpoint, it goes this way, I um, cannot remember the man's name, but he said there was a God without wrath that brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment by a Christ without a cross. Uh, he said that was the type of preaching that was happening in modern churches back in the 1950s. That he saw that the preaching was that there was a God without wrath. They preached to God, but that God was not angry. It's a lie. Men without sin, they would preach about humanity. We see that today. There are so many man-centered preachers today. That you're so good, that God couldn't help himself. He wants you so badly because you're such a great blessing. You're a jewel in the rough. Baloney. A God without wrath. Men without sin. Into a kingdom without judgment. That man who was buried, that wicked man thought, and the people around him thought that, Guess what? God's going to take him to heaven. No, he won't. A God without wrath, men without sin, a kingdom without judgment by a Christ without a cross. There's so many people that are preaching Christ today, but they're preaching things that Christ did, but they don't preach about what Christ ultimately did. He died. He was buried. He rose again, and he is now seated at his father's right hand, waiting to come back to judge the living and the dead. That is the Lord of Lords. That is the King of Kings. That is Christ. But when we think that God is a God of wrath, you could sin a hundred times. You could try to prolong your life with every tool that you can. But if you do not know Christ, you will stand before him in judgment. And watch what he says. I see this, but then he says, I know this. Yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God. It will be. That if you reverence God, if you honor God, if you're devoted to him, it will be well with you. But if you rebel against God, if you spit in his face, it will not be well, he says, because those that fear God are before him. What a huge privilege that the sovereign God of this universe comes to reside with you. He comes to live with you. He comes to live in you. He fights for you. That is the sovereign God of this universe. That's for those who fear him. But those that don't, verse 13, but it will not be well for those with the wicked. Neither will they prolong their days. They could fight all they want to prolong their lives because their lives are like a shadow, kind of like I just read in James chapter four. It's like a vapor. It's here, it's gone. And he says, because he does not fear before God. There's so many people today that think that just because God is delayed in his punishment that there is no God and that there is no judgment. It is a lie right from the pit of hell. And every single one of us will stand before God and have to give an account. And it says that in the final day that God is going to put those that don't know him on his left and those that do know him on his right. And there's a beautiful passage in Romans chapter 8 and it says there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. See, if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about the judgment. The judgment has already been done. Righteous in my sight. You're my child. Enter my kingdom. And for those of you that don't, it will not go well.
So he summarizes this second section. He says this in verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, you know, meaninglessness, that the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and the, the wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. It seems like on this earth, it just seems unfair. And that's what Asaph was saying in Psalm 73. It seems like the righteous people get what the wicked deserve and the wicked people get what the righteous deserve. And he says, all of this is vanity. I'll take a quick offshoot to this and then I'll close up with our last section. As I was reading this section and meditating on this verse, I was thinking about this. There was no more righteous person than the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we find ourselves feeling so frustrated with the fact that we do the right thing and that evil comes upon us in this world. But I'm a sinner. <laughs> and even on my best day, I am a sinner. And sometimes I get what I deserve and sometimes I don't get what I deserve. But the reality is I don't deserve anything. I deserve the wrath of God. But the righteous one, the truly righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, took the life of the wicked person. Says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For God, the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and for me. That in Christ we might be the righteousness of God. See, that's the thing here in verse 14. That the righteous person gets the evil deeds. Well, Christ, the ultimately righteous one, got the evil upon him so that he could set you free. So that is freedom and hope. And in the injustice of this world, live in the trust that God can work all things together for good. Live with gospel hope. Live with gospel grace. So submit to God-given authority. See life through heaven's eyes or through the eyes of eternity. And then lastly, savor life. Savor life. Verse 15 and following. It says this. The writer is saying, the teacher is saying, I commend joy. For the man who is nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him, I'm sorry, for this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now, you may have heard that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? Right, and that's kind of cynical. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Paul talked about that kind of cynical way of living. I don't think that's what he's saying. He is saying this, I commend you to live in the midst of the craziness, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the chaos of this world, live savoring God. Be satisfied in him, be secure in him. Be hopeful in the empty tomb and live in joy. And whether you eat, or drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's what Paul said in Romans. Commend joy. In James chapter 1, you know this passage well, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter picked up the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. He, says, he said this, he said, in this, in the suffering, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, even painful fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, that's it. We keep Christ in the center. 
And we praise him and we honor him and we seek his glory through our lives and then God does something amazing. Save her life because you trust in God's providence. Last two verses. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, once again, he's doing this diligent search, and see the, busy, the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. He's, he's going anxiously through his day, and he has insomnia at li- night. He can't sleep at night. Why? Because he's looking at this life, and he is frustrated. This is the testimony of this frustrated philosopher. He's looking, and he's, he's on the spiritual quest, and he feels the anxiety. He feels the worry. He feels the stress. He feels the burden. He feels the weariness. He knows life is difficult, but then he goes back to the first 17. Then I saw the works of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it. He talked in this passage about the blessings and the benefits of wisdom, but he ends with the fact that we have limitations. He confronts the limitations of human knowledge. He confronts the limitations of human wisdom. He says, some of you guys are going to look at the confusion in this world and you're going to say that there is no God. That's not true. Some of you are going to look at the confusion in this world and you're going to say that God doesn't know. That's not true. Some of you are going to look at the confusion in this world and you're going to say that God is no good. That is not true. All the skeptical ways of looking at life should come back to this. I don't know God, but I trust you. That's it. Don't doubt God's existence. Don't doubt God by saying, I know better than him. Don't doubt his goodness. Don't doubt that he's not in control. He is in control. Recognize that you're finite. You're failing. You're frail. But he is good. And so... Paul in Romans, I'll end with this, in Romans 11, after he had this wonderful passage about the um, salvation, how we are saved, he ends this section with this. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things are to the glory of God forever and ever and ever again. So how do you live with wisdom? Because there's very few people that do. You submit to God-given authority. You see life through the eyes of eternity. And you savor every day of life because God has given it to you. And you walk by faith and not by sight. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I, um, I thank you. Because there are so many of us that struggle with thinking we need to know all the right things and know, need to know all the answers. And we get upset with you that you don't give it to us. Father, how could our finite minds even comprehend all the things that you know? You know everything from past, everything present, and everything that will happen ever in eternity. We can't possibly know that with our little feeble brains that you've given us. But these feeble brains could trust you. So help us to be saturated with your word. 
Help us to see that you have put these authority figures in our lives. Help us to submit when we can and help us to be wise and when we don't. Help us to see life through the eyes of eternity, that our death is impending, other people are dying. Help us to see that you are the judge, and I praise you for the fact that we will stand under your judgment as righteous in your sight if we trust in you. And Father, help us to savor life. Help us to have joy. Help us to have contentment. Help us to have peace and hope. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All of that only happen because of what we symbolize this morning. There's a cup with juice. It's not the blood of Christ. Some churches teach that. That's just not true. Christ died once for sin. He poured out his blood 2,000 years ago for you. But when we take that cup, we're symbolizing that Christ's blood that ran for you. When we take the bread, the morsel that's in there, there's two different cups. So if you pick up one, if you're new, there's a cup underneath with a cracker or a wafer, and then there's a cup above with the juice. When you take the cracker, the wafer, it's symbolizing the broken body that was broken for you. See, we stand before a God of wrath because we are men of sin, and we enter a kingdom by judgment because of a Christ on a cross and a Christ who left that cross and died and went into a tomb, and a Christ whose body was raised three days later, a Christ who was ascended into heaven, and a Christ that is going to come back for the living and the dead. We worship him this morning. Let's pray.
the elements. Whispered prayers, winter nights, carol songs, candlelight. Silently we bow our souls before the one the manger holds. This tiny infant king is born to one day wear the nail and thorn this is the beautiful body and blood lamb that is offered by heaven's love born to be broken and spilled out for us beautiful body and blood mother's kiss on tender feet that will walk a hill of destiny the tiny hands by his side will on that day be opened wide he will bear each sin of yours and mine and so we take the bread and wine this is the beautiful body and blood lamb that is offered by heaven's love he's born to be broken and spilled out for us beautiful body and blood this is the beautiful body and blood lamb that is offered by heaven's love and he's born to be broken and spilled out for us beautiful body and blood the beautiful body and blood lamb that is offered by heaven's love born to be broken and spilled out for us beautiful body and blood this is the beautiful body and blood lamb that is offered by heaven's love he is born to be broken and spilled out for us beautiful body and blood the beautiful body and blood
the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, these words, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, Help us never to get over the wonders of the cross. The wonder that God the Son became one of us, died for us, rose from the grave, and is now the glorious King who is coming back one day. May we, may we never forget that truth and proclaim it by our life and, our lips, and on our lips until you come. In Christ's name I pray, amen.